Well, as Jake kind of set the stage a little bit, the very best holiday season will soon be upon us. As a kid, I didn't quite think it was the best. You know, of course, I loved Christmas. And we all know why, to get as many presents as possible. But as an adult, boy, by far, the day above all days to celebrate and to be thankful for is Resurrection Sunday. It's, Easter is now my favorite because of the importance of the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the entirety of Christianity comes tumbling down. But with the resurrection, everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus accomplished is reality. Authenticated by God in heaven. If Jesus is dead in the grave, then nothing else matters. Life is meaningless. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, then also nothing else matters. For us, his followers, and life has enormous, wonderful, significant purpose. So today, leading into the Easter season, I thought we would study John's account of the resurrection and spend some time personalizing it by reliving that glorious morning. And in doing so, we'll be challenged to be more fully devoted to the Lord. We'll see evidences of his resurrection and we'll understand the completed work of the cross in relation to forgiveness of our sins. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. You can open your, open your Bibles if you want. Before, but before we begin, let's kind of set the stage of what's going on. Well, it's early Sunday morning and Jesus has been dead in the grave for three days. Pilate's washed his hands of the whole matter. He's appeased the Jews. He's relieved and his job is secure. The Jewish leaders are satisfied and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are also relieved. This preacher from Galilee will no longer be a thorn in their side. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. They won't be disturbed anymore. It is behind them. And what about the disciples? Their lives are shattered. They've been hiding, hiding behind closed doors. They left their fishing businesses and other livelihoods. Now it is all gone. They had heard the truth Jesus preached. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the power. They witnessed his grace. They were so convinced he was who he claimed to be. And now Jesus is dead. Pilate, it seems, has come out on top. It seems the Pharisees and the Sadducees have won. There's only one thing that could change all of this. There's only one reality that could happen to prove ultimately that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. There's only one reality that could assure that his death on the cross had power to forgive our sins. That one reality upon which everything hangs and everything pivots around is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's because of the resurrection, the grave is defeated. The enemies of Christ are conquered. It's because of the resurrection, the followers of Christ are victorious. It's because of the resurrection that Jesus has proven to be Lord over heaven and earth. It is the resurrection that changes everything. So this morning, let's see how this morning unfolded through the eyewitness account of John. But first, let's look at Mary Magdalene. And her love for the Lord. We're going to start in verse 1. And here we read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And saw the stone already away, taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. 
and we do not know where they have laid him. So this would be early Sunday morning. Jesus was nailed to the cross Friday morning. He died that afternoon. His body was taken down and buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea by 6 p.m. that Friday night because they must complete that process before the Sabbath began at sunset. Jesus has been in a tomb Friday evening, all day Saturday, and now it's Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb when it was still dark. And she comes out of a sense of devotion. This isn't certainly a routine, right? Jesus has never died before. So therefore, it's out of devotion. There's such a love that she has for the Lord because he had forgiven her of her checkered past and her past sins. Her life was radically transformed and she comes out of love and devotion. And we read there are other women with her. In verse 2, we note when she says, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So when we read the other gospel accounts, we find out that there's also Mary, the mother of James, and Salome is with her. We find that in Mark 16.1. And Luke 24.10 mentions other women. So there's this group, a cluster of women, devoted to the Lord, following him. And in this dark hour when all things seem lost, it's their love for him. And they will not let go. They come early that morning, especially Mary Magdalene. In fact, she had followed Christ all the way to the cross and stood before him during the crucifixion. Even the other disciples had fled away other than John. Yet Mary Magdalene and a few other women followed him to the cross and they stayed with him at the cross. And now they're ministering to him after the cross early on Resurrection Sunday. So here comes Mary Magdalene onto the scene where God has broken the seal on the tomb and the resurrection has occurred. So before we go any further, let's just stop and let's just admire and be challenged by this devotion of Mary Magdalene. She is here early on Sunday morning out of this love, a deep sense of devotion, and she's coming to bring more spices to anoint the body further. Again, we find that in Mark 16.1. And it's this unwavering devotion That caused her to rise early that morning, even in in the appearance of defeat, the sad, sad morning. Nothing is going to keep her away from the Lord. It's like she's thinking, if my Lord lies there, I'm going to be drawn to him like a magnet. If my Lord is over here, then I will go. I will do whatever is necessary in this situation. And is that not why you are here this morning? Have you not come motivated out of this very same reality in your own soul that we too have been delivered from so much sin? Has your own life not also been radically transformed and changed, significantly altered? Do you not know him today as your Lord and Savior? Is that not the reason why you're here too? That you made the effort to get up early on a Sunday morning to come to this house of worship. It is because of gratitude, because of devotion, because of your loyalty to Christ. This must be the motivation of what we do for Jesus. May it never be out of a sense of like empty duty or empty religion. May it be always flowing from a heart of love, delight and compassion for our Lord. That's what drew Mary to the tomb. And I'm sure that's what draws you here today. What Jesus has done in your life. 
So as we read on, it seems to go from bad to worse. It appears that not only is Jesus dead, but someone has stolen the body. Because, again, we read in verse two, she ran and she came upon Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said to him, said to them, they've taken away the Lord and we don't know where they've laid him. The other disciple mentioned here is the Apostle John, the author of this book. And it's a humble or maybe not so humble a way that he refers to himself without even mentioning his own name, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, as soon as Mary Magdalene made that discovery, she was startled. She had no idea about a resurrection. She just says to Peter and John, they've taken the body. And surely she's referring to the Jewish leaders. That it wasn't enough that they cried for Jesus' crucifixion, but now they're circling like sharks and there's blood in the water. And they want to steal his body. She assumes he's dead. They laid it elsewhere. We know, though, that the enemies did not have the body. In fact, they feared that. They didn't want the body to disappear and claim a resurrection. In fact, they suggested posting a guard to assure nobody took the body. That's the very last thing they would want to do is take the body. And we see evidence of that in Matthew 27, 62 to 66. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away. And say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. They were afraid the disciples would come steal the body. So I can tell you this. Jesus' enemies did not have the body, because if they had, all they would have to do is parade that body up and down the streets of Jerusalem, and it would be hard to have a message on the resurrection with a dead body in plain view. If Jesus' enemies had the body, obviously they would have made that known, and there never would have been a gospel message, message preached, because they would have the dead body. Christianity would be defeated before it got started. But they did not have the dead body of Christ because there was no dead body of Christ. Because on the third day, Christ walked out of that tomb, a risen and glorious Savior. Some say the disciples stole the body. Really? They're hiding cowardly behind closed doors, shaking in fear. Women come to announce the empty tomb while they're hiding behind closed doors. The disciples went from before the resurrection, being scared and hiding, to after the resurrection, being radically transformed because they'd seen the risen Christ. They were willing to die a martyr's death because of what they had witnessed. Eleven out of the twelve disciples died a martyr's death. Peter, according to, to tradition, was crucified upside down. The Apostle John was the only one to escape a martyr's death, and he was sentenced to the island of Patmos to end his life there. No, the disciples had not stolen the body. The disciples saw the risen Christ and were transformed. Jesus' enemies did not steal the body because they would have produced it. Jesus' disciples didn't steal the body because they stood like steel 
firm, never denying the resurrection, even in the face of death. So, let's take in some more evidence in this text that supports the resurrection. Let's read on. In verse 3 through 7, we read, So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Peter and John responded in the same way that you or I would respond that day. They responded in desperation. This was terrible news. They had not anticipated a resurrection. This is not good news. This is bad news. This is going from bad to worse. Now his body had been stolen in their mind. So Peter went forth, and we expect this from Peter's character. The other disciple mentioned here, as we talked about, is the author John, and they're running. Full tilt, I imagine. And John mentions that, mentions that he won this famous foot race that we've all read about before. John was propelled that day. He bolted to the tomb as fast as he could, as fast as his legs would take him. And we read to where he stopped, he stooped, and looked in. And saw the linen wrappings lying there. So, running up to the tomb, there'd be a short little entrance to the tomb. It's cut in the side of a cliff, and inside there's the burial room. So, we get this picture of John running up there really fast. It's kind of stopping, stooping, looking. He looks into the tomb, eyes darting around. What evidence do I see? Clues of who might have taken the body. And what he saw was linen wrappings lying there. Now, as we look at that sentence, or you hear that, where's the emphasis? In your mind, in that sentence, that he saw linen wrappings lying there. One commentator I read noted that in Greek, due to the linear nature of the language, in general, words towards the beginning of the clause or sentence are, have more emphasis than words towards the end. In this case, the emphasis in the original language was on lying there. He saw lying there were the linen wrappings. Our attention should be on lying there. They're not unraveled. They're not scattered. They're not disturbed. This tomb does not look like a house where things have been thrown all around everywhere and you know there's been a robbery or a break-in. No, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, undisturbed, in the right place. In fact, just the linen wrappings were there is strange, right? Robbers and thieves would have ripped them apart. But in fact, if you were stealing the body, you would not even want to take off the linen wrappings before you stole the body and be exposed to to it. You would want the body to remain wrapped. So how strange it is that the linen wrappings are just lying there. So obviously what happened, we know it happened in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that he merely passed through these linen wrappings. Just like later this night, he will pass through walls when he comes and meets with the disciples in the upper room. They were lying there because Jesus just passed through them in his risen, glorified body. And after John outruns Peter, Peter now catches up. I'm sure he's breathing hard, he's panting. But where John's just glancing and looking in, Peter runs all the way into the tomb. He knows, Peter never does anything with, with half effort. He goes all the way in. 
And we read where Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there. But here it's interesting because the author uses an entirely different word. Where John glances, the word used for Peter means to gaze upon for the purposes of analyzing. So John, from the outside, looks in, notices. Peter runs in, sees, but he's gazing, he's analyzing. He's trying to figure out what is going on, making a more careful study. And he's struck by something that missed John's attention. The face cloth. It's not lying there with the other linen wrappings, but it's rolled up in a place by itself. It's not in disarray, but orderly arrangement folded up. Again, not as if a grave robber broke in and just started throwing things around. But the face cloth is neatly rolled up in a place by itself. Everything was orderly in the tomb. It seems incredible at this point that the disciples of Jesus did not expect him to just come out of that tomb. Jesus told them many times that he will rise from the dead, but it still didn't dawn on them that Christ will be resurrected. In Matthew 12, 40, we read Jesus saying, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said this publicly. Before the religious leaders of Israel and his disciples were standing right there. It should have registered, but it didn't. On one more similar occasion, we find in Matthew 16, 21, this was right after Peter's confession, where he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. We read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. They couldn't get past the part where Jesus said, I will be killed. Killed? What? Jesus, you can't be killed. It seems like they never heard the fact that he will rise again on the third day. There was no doubt about what our Lord taught his own disciples concerning his resurrection. And there's no doubt about what our Lord announced to the Jewish leaders of the day about the, his resurrection. He had openly, clearly, publicly, privately pronounced his resur resurrection from the dead. And not merely his resurrection, he called the day he would be raised from the dead on the third day. How they should have known that there would be a resurrection. But they would not listen to the clear teaching, all of the teaching of Jesus. And boy, can we look inside for a minute this morning. We are often like this, are we not? We hear what we want to hear. We have selective hearing. We hear portions of the truth and we latch onto that. And then with other portions of the truth, we just don't embrace or receive. How hard it is even for us to hear all that Jesus has said. Well, taking all this in, they reach a point where they're starting to put the evidence together. John takes another step further in piecing together the mystery of the empty tomb. This is unfolding gradually. Now, Watch the light bulb come on in John's mind here. 
Watch now as he realizes, as, as his mind is enlightened by the Holy Spirit and he understands what has happened. We read in verse 8. So the other disciple who had come, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And he saw and believed. John first came to the entrance and went no further. Peter came in and went all the way in. John now enters in and further and he saw. Again, this is worth noting and maybe underlining in your Bible or making a little note for further study. This is the third different word the Apostle John uses here for the word we translated as to see. John is the writer. He was the one who was there. He experienced this. He wrote this down for us to experience also. He knows the nuances. So he uses a third word that we translate as see. Now he does not merely see the facts, but he sees with understanding, with spiritual perception. And he saw. No longer a quick glance, but he figures it out. God has now given him spiritual eyes to see and understand. And this is what he understood. The body has not been stolen. The whole time he's running was under the assumption of what Mary Magdalene said was true, that somebody had stolen the body and she did not know where they laid him. He glances in, he sees the linen wrappings there, all under the assumption that someone has taken the body. He steps all the way in the tomb, surveys the situation, looks a second and third time. And with his quick mind and aided by the Spirit of God, he begins to connect the dots and he comes to this conclusion. No, the body has not been stolen. The body has been raised from the dead and he's alive and he's been raised from the dead. And note the two next two words and believed. John believes now with a deeper sense of belief, a deeper assurance, a deeper conviction that Jesus is raised from the dead. And indeed, he's the Christ. Indeed, he's the son of God. And Christ is the Lord of glory. And his doubts in that regard are cast away. His second thoughts removed. John now stands firmer in the faith that he first showed to Christ three years earlier. When Christ said, leave your nets, leave your family. Follow me. He went from a momentary state of confusion. What just happened here? Where's Jesus? He went from a momentary state of confusion to now he sees, he believes, he interprets, he understands, he believes. Finally, let's conclude with verse 11 and 12 because it paints such a beautiful picture of what the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ accomplished for us. You see, in the Old Testament, after God had delivered the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he had the Israelites build a portable tabernacle where God would dwell with his people. And part of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And inside the Ark contained the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that had budded and manna from the wilderness. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. Here's what the mercy seat looked like as it's described in Exodus 25. The mercy seat was made of pure gold. It's the top of the ark. The mercy seat was made of pure gold. Two angels, cherubim, were placed on a seat, seat at each end of the cover. They faced each other and their wings were pointed upward. 
In verse 22 in that chapter in Exodus, we read God saying, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. In Leviticus 16.15, God instructs that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And here's what the priest was to do. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The point conveyed by this imagery that is only through the offering of blood sprinkled on the mercy seat that the condemnation of the law, condemnation of sin could be taken away and the violations of God's laws would be covered. Our passage concluded in verse 11 and 12 by saying, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked in the tomb And she saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. One at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Jesus had come to fulfill all the Old Testament types and shadows that had pointed to him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. For example, when he was killed on the cross, he fulfilled the picture of the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. Now what God was showing in John 20 by having Mary Magdalene see those angels watching over his body was that Jesus fulfilled the picture of the mercy seat. Now he's the living mercy seat. Our mercy seat has risen. He is now the living mercy seat whose blood was shed for our sins once and for all. And now he's the advocate for us at the right hand of the Father, administering mercy to all who come to him and believe upon his finished work of the cross. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. The disciples went away strengthened, their hope fully resting upon Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead, and they were ready to die for him if needed. And that, we know, was the fate of the majority of them. But the resurrection also changes everything for us. Have you come to know him, the risen Christ? Have you not just quickly glanced at the facts, but now have you believed? Do you know him? Have you come to see him with the eyes of your heart? What the scripture says about this is true. That Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners and that he was buried on the third Buried, and on the third day, God raised him from the dead. This is the heart of the gospel. And this is the good news about Christ, that that he came into this world so we might then get to go to heaven. He became the son of man so we could become the sons of God. Christ became the mediator between God and man so we might be brought into God's family. Indeed, as we get closer and closer to Easter and we think about it often and we celebrate, God indeed raised his son from the dead. He is a living savior. He's the living mercy seat 
to where we, where we can find forgiveness. And you can know him. You can experience him in your heart and soul. He's not just some ancient person who lived so long ago. He lives daily in our hearts, in the hearts of all who've committed and believe in him. As the eyewitnesses account, eyewitnesses to the account, they saw, then they believed. I implore you to consider these details and believe upon Christ. Confess your sins and trust him to be your Lord and Savior. Again, it's the resurrection that changes everything about our lives. It changes our life dramatically.